many of the examples used in the teaching of our Savior Jesus Christ were from everyday events which happened around Him. In much the same way, modern-day prophets teach us by their daily example. The simple, powerful message is, Come, follow me. May I share with you some of the teaching moments I have learned from a modern-day prophet? We can learn much from the courage shown by President Kimball as he has endured his many illnesses. He is a living prophet by overcoming pain and adversity. We can cleanse our soul and know that our faith and testimony in Jesus Christ will do the same that it has done for him. Indeed, in terms of the trials he has had to face, he is in many ways a modern-day Job. The story of Job in the Old Testament relates three of the great tests we all should be prepared to face at some period in our lives. First, temporal setbacks. Job lost all he owned. Second, physical illness. Illness that will test our faith and testimony. Third, depression. Job said, Why died I not from the womb? My soul is weary of my life. But the great lesson of Job is that in all this, Job sinned not, nor charge God foolishly. Too often when adversity strikes, we use it for a justification to commit sin and turn away from the teachings of Jesus Christ, the prophets who lead us, our families and friends. Job maintained his testimony and was blessed with an unwavering faith that he knew that God lived and he dwelt in his presence. President Kimball, being a righteous man like Job, has endured many trials, cancer of the throat, heart surgery, boils, cranial surgery, and numerous other afflictions. President Kimball's experiences serve as an example of how we should meet similar adversity and suffering in our lives. President Kimball has not sinned nor charged God foolishly. He has kept his integrity, his testimony to sing the praises of his Lord throughout his many physical trials. We have never heard him complain about his trials. On the contrary, his challenge has been, Give me that mountain to climb. The courage and faith of President Kimball to overcome adversity is an example to all of us to testify that we too can meet the other little aches and pains, but that are little hurts in comparison to what he has had. In fact, after his throat operation, President Kimball had no voice. During a testimony meeting, President McKay asked him to bear his testimony. He could not speak a word. He only could utter inaudible, breathy sounds. He wrote a note to President McKay afterwards and asked, Why would you do that to me? The President answered, Spencer, you must get your voice back, for you have a great mission to perform. What a moving example of love from one prophet to another. President Kimball was obedient. He learned how to trap air in his esophagus, to use the scar tissue of his remaining vocal cord, and regained his voice to carry on his great work. The accomplishments of President Kimball's prophetic mission will stand equal to any in this or any other dispensation. Camilla has devotedly and lovingly followed President Kimball every step of the way. I remember one night in Samoa, when both President and Sister Kimball had temperatures of 104 degrees. Early the next morning, they were the first ones on the bus. He conducted the meetings, and they fulfilled all their busy schedule throughout the day. 
not just enduring, but being gracious and considerate and thinking of the needs of everyone else around them. When President Kimball was called to the Council of Twelve, he accepted his call with humble tears. He wondered if he was worthy of such a great calling. After he hung up the telephone, it was Camilla who reassured him, You can do it, Spencer. You can do it. President Kimball taught me a lesson during my call to become a general authority. He asked if I'd come to Salt Lake City to be a general authority for the rest of my life. I was overcome with emotion. My reply, President Kimball, I just don't know what to say. Then he said, I only want you to say yes. The lesson was clear. There is no need for an eloquence of speech to express our commitment or our love or devotion when accepting a call from the prophet. He already knows these things. President Kimball always reaches out with sincere love to touch the one. We were preparing for an area conference briefing, and as I entered President Kimball's office, he was seated at a typewriter, his back toward the door. He had just finished typing, spun around in his chair to greet me. In one hand was a 32-page letter from a young man who had read his book, Miracle of Forgiveness, and in the other his personally typed reply to answer the special needs of a young man who wanted and needed his help to repent. The message was a clear one. It was a message that said, no matter how busy you are, young man, never forget those who need your help. He bears his missionary testimony as a special witness without the fear of man. I have observed it. At Copenhagen-Denmark Area Conference in August of 1976, President Kimball went to to Thorvaldsen's beautiful sculptor, the Christus, the resurrected Christ, which had been reproduced, as you know, for the visitor centers in Salt Lake and Los Angeles. After a few spiritual moments admiring the Christus, President Kimball bore his testimony to the caretaker who stood nearby. As he turned to the statue of Peter and pointed to the large set of keys in Peter's right hand, he proclaimed, The keys of priesthood authority which Peter held as president of the Church, I now hold as president of the Church in this dispensation. Then he stated to the caretaker, You work every day with apostles in stone, but today you are in the presence of living apostles. He then introduced President Tanner, Elder Monson, and Elder Packer. He presented the caretaker with a book of Mormon and Danish and bore his testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith. The caretaker was moved to tears as he acknowledged the spirit of being in the presence of of a prophet and apostles. He acknowledged to me later as we left the church, Today I have been in the presence of servants of God. President Kimball works with loving diligence, with all of his heart, might, mind, and strength, He does not demand nor expect those around him to work at his pace, but at their pace. But he is a man of action demonstrated by the simple sign on his desk that says, Do it. For those who work with him, his example eliminates phrases such as, I'll try, I'll do my best. His example and love motivates those who follow his example to achieve higher goals and lengthen their stride toward perfection. He has that rare ability to encourage each of us to do better than our best and to keep striving until we exceed our goals. During the planning and preparation for the Mexico, Central, and South America area conferences in February 1977, we were scheduled to hold meetings in La Paz, Bolivia, which is 12,000 feet above sea level. 
Dr. Ernest L. Wilkinson and Dr. Russell M. Nelson, advise us that President Kimball should have four to six hours rest to acclimate his heart and blood pressure to the high altitude. President Kimball is very tightly scheduled during area conferences, and this allows little time for rest. In reality, the doctors accomplished the, accompanied the general authorities so that we could keep up with President Kimball. I talked with President Tanner and President Romney to seek their assistance in getting President Kimball to rest in La Paz before the start of the area conference. They only smiled and said, you can try. Detailed plans were presented to the first presidency for area conferences in Mexico, Central, and South America. I saw President Kimball make two small red check marks next to La Paz, Bolivia, where there were two meetings that he was not scheduled to attend. What are these meetings? Why am I not attending, he asked. There was that pause, which I had felt a number of times before. Then I replied, that's a rest period, President Kimball. And he remarked, are you tired, Elder Hales? <laughs> we arrived in La Paz, and the first meeting was a cultural event. He would not rest. My head ached. It felt as though it would explode in the adjusting to the altitude as we breathed oxygen to attempt to speed up and acclimate ourselves to the 12,000-foot altitude. But President Kimball took no oxygen. He greeted, embraced, and shook the hands of 2,000 saints. After the last meeting, he invited 1,000 more of his beloved Lamanites who'd come down from the Alta Plana to come shake his hand. They came and embraced him and shook his hand vigorously. He wanted to show his love for his Lamanites. Dr. Wilkinson was concerned with the president's vigorous activity at 12,000 feet and approached him. He asked him the question if it would be possible for him to stop soon. President Kimball said to him, If you knew what I knew, you wouldn't ask me that question. President Kimball is driven by the knowledge that we are preparing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. He knows that it is, it is his responsibility, along with those who are chosen to work with him, to take this message to all nations in their own tongue and language. President Kimball told the general authorities, I am not afraid of death. What I am afraid of is that I will meet the Savior and he will say, you could have done better. Can you feel the dedication, the urgency of a president's voice to move the kingdom forward? Are you tired, Elder Hales? Has a way of ringing in my ears when I rest for a moment. If we knew what President Kimball knew, then we too would work with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength. When we tried to save his strength, he'd say, I know you're trying to save me, but I don't want to be saved. I want to be exalted. He then would tell us that the Lord would sustain him as a prophet, and he'd not slow the church down because of him. The prophet Joseph Smith was counseled, My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but for a small moment, and then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high, thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. Thy friends do stand by thee, and they shall hail thee again with warm hearts and friendly hands. In testimony, I ask the Lord's blessings upon us, that we might feel the urgency of this great work, to understand what drives our profit. He is a missionary because he knows that all mankind must be taught the Spirit by the Spirit and be baptized. Then, if we live worthy, we will attain eternal life and be exalted and return into the presence of God the Father and Jesus Christ to dwell with them throughout eternity. 
And one time, closing conference, President Kimball said, My people say, Lord, Lord, and do not what I say. I bear you my testimony that a prophet leads this church today by revelation, and that it is my prayer that we will say, Lord, Lord, and do as our prophet and those to whom lead this church today, that we will follow their example, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, in the many times that I have spoken from this, this pulpit in a general conference of the church, being a missionary, I have usually spoken to try and convince the non-member of the church that we have the only true church upon the face of the earth today, not the wisdom of men, but committed direct from heaven by heavenly messengers. Today, as I thought of what I would like to say, I thought I would like to speak to the inactive members of this church, those who ought to be active, because many of them come from good Latter-day Saint families, and then to those of you who have inactive members in the church. The Lord, speaking through Moses, said, For this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man. Then the Lord should provide a way for those of us, his spirit children, to know what his program is in order to be able to obtain immortality and eternal life. And that's the mission of this great church. And um, I, I think that many of our people don't really know just what the church stands for. Jesus said, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, for they are they which testify of me. And then, speaking of those who would come at the time of his return to the earth, he said, and many would come and say, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then he would say to them, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And when uh, John the Revelator was banished upon the Isle of Patmos, and the voice from heaven said, Come up hither, and I will show you that which must be hereafter. The angel of the Lord showed John many wonderful things. He showed him the coming of a new heaven, and a new earth, when there be no more sickness, and no more pain, and no more death, where we no more need the sun by day, nor the moon by night, for the glory of God would be upon the earth. When no man would say, Know ye the Lord, for every man would walk in the light 
of the Lord his God. And when John saw all of that, he wanted to kneel down and worship the angel who showed it to him. And the angel said, See thou do it not, for I am but one of the brethren of the prophets like unto thyself. And then the angel showed him the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, and every man was judged according to the things written in the books according to their works. And death and hell delivered up the dead that were in them. And then he said, Blessed and holy are they who have part in the first resurrection, for over the such hath the second death no power, but they shall become priests unto the Most High God and shall rule with him forever. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to be worthy to come forth in the morning of the first resurrection? But the angel didn't leave it there. He said, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years are ended. Is there any man with his clear thinking that would want to gamble on being left in his grave a thousand years when the Son of Man shall come in the clouds of heaven with all the holy angels and those who have died in him shall be brought forth from the grave and those who are living in him shall be caught up in the air and changed in the twinkling of an eye. I like the statement of the philosopher Cicero. He said he was much more interested in the long hereafter than he was in the brief present. Today in our natural routine and patterns of life, our children go to school as we did for 12 to 20 years to learn how to have a richer life here in mortality, that we could earn a better living, that we could enjoy the cultural and the refined things of life. If it's worth spending 12 to 20 years to prepare for a life of 75 to 100 years, what is it worth to prepare for a life that never ends. Uh, uh, in the Book of Mormon, we're told that this life is the time to prepare to meet the Lord. And I think we ought to be more interested in the long hereafter than we are in just the brief present. I wonder if you ever stop to figure how long that, lo that long hereafter really is. You may have probably heard me tell this before, but when my wife and I had been married 35 years, I said, Mommy, what do you think we'll be doing in 35 million years from today? <laughs> she said, where'd you get that crazy idea? <laughs> Makes me tired to think of it. I said, well, you believe in eternal life, don't you? I said, in the Book of Mormon, I'm going to tell, no, uh, we're, we're told that time is 
measured only to man. That with God, there isn't such a thing as time. It's one eternal round. And the prophet Joseph illustrated it by taking a ring. He said, when you cut it, there's a beginning and there's an end. But as long as you don't cut it, there's no beginning and there's no end. I said, now, Mother, if you believe that, you and I ought to be pretty well acquainted with each other in 35 million years from today. <laughs> Isn't that what Cicero meant when he said he was much more interested in the long hereafter than he was in the brief present? During the ministry of the Savior, he gave us many uh, parables and statements to prepare us for, that, for his second coming when he would come in power to reign upon the earth. I'd like to give you one or two to remind you. I give you first his parable of the talents. You remember about the man who went on a far journey and gave to his servants his talents. To one he gave five, to another two, to another one. And after a time, he returned to hold accounting with those servants. And the one who had been given five talents said, See, five talents thou gavest unto me. I have won other five talents. Thou hast that which is thine, and gave him the ten talents. And the master said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Wouldn't that be wonderful to be made ruler over many things? Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. The one who had received two talents, we don't all get the same, one other two talents, and he got the same plaudits for faithfulness over his two talents. But the one who had received the one talent, he hid it in the earth. He said, I knew you were a hard master, that you gathered where you hadn't strung and reaped where you hadn't sowed, so I hid your talent so I could return it to you. And what did the master say? Take away from the unprofitable servant even that which he has received, and give to him who hath the ten talents, for he that hath unto him shall be given, and he that hath not from him shall be taken away even that which he has received. And cast the unprofitable servant out into utter darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Would anybody like to look forward to that time that never ends, that long hereafter, and be a sign where there would be gnashing of teeth and so forth? Now I give you another of the Savior's parables to prepare for his coming, and that's the parable of the ten virgins. And you remember, five of them took oil in their lamps, and five of them had no oil. And when the, uh, the call came, the bridegroom cometh, the five with oil went to meet him. The others wanted to borrow, but there was not enough to share, so they went to purchase oil. The ones with oil went in 
to the, the wedding feast and the others, when they returned, the doors were already closed. Why do you think Jesus gave us a parable like that if he didn't feel the need of inactivity coming into activity in his church? The next one I give to you is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember how Lazarus ate the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, and when he laid in sores, the dogs licked his sores, and then the rich man and Lazarus both died, and uh, Lazarus went over into the bosom of Abraham, that is, he was received with honor, and the rich man went into, uh, what's the word I want? Well, anyway, he went where it was bad. <laughs> I'm getting old. So um, then the rich man looked up and saw is in torment. That's the word I wanted. The rich man looked up and saw Abraham, uh, 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 saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, and he cried out. I pray thee, Father Abraham, that thou wouldst permit Lazarus to come and dip his fingers and touch my parched lip, because I thirst in this torment. And Father Abraham said, Not so. There is a gulf between you and him, and where you are he cannot come. And then the rich man's thoughts turned to earth, where he had five brothers. He said, I pray thee then, Father Abraham, that thou wouldst send Lazarus back to the earth, that he might warn my brothers, lest they come into this torment. And Father Abraham said, Not so, for they have Moses and the prophets, and if they heed not the prophets who are sent unto them, they would not heed though one were to come to them from the dead. Now, Jesus didn't give us all those beautiful parables for nothing, and he said, He that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, him will I liken unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And when the storms came and the wind blew and beat upon that house, it stood because it was built upon a rock. But he that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not, him will I liken unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sands. And when the storms came and the winds blew and beat upon that house, it fell because it was built upon the sand. Who'd want to build their house upon the sand so that it would not stand the storms of adversity and so forth. That's my plea here today. You remember the words of the prophet Jeremiah? He said the day would come when it should no longer be said, as sure as God lives, who led Israel up out of Egypt, but so sure as God lives, who hath gathered Israel from the four quarters of the earth. And he would send for many fishers, and they would fish them. 
and for many hunters, and they would hunt them from the hills and from the mountains and from the holes in the rocks. That's that 30 million Mormon missionaries scattered throughout the world, gathering in scattered Israel. And then uh, Jeremiah said, Turn unto me, O backsliding children, for I am married unto you. What a covenant! Isn't it wonderful to think that if we'll heed the promptings of the Holy Spirit, it'll be like a relationship of being married unto them, Jeremiah adds, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you pastors after mine own heart, and they shall teach you with knowledge and with understanding. Search your histories of the world, and you can't find anywhere where people have been gathered, one of a city and two of a family, like they have to these valleys of the mountains and where they have been given by God the Eternal Father, pastors after his own heart, such as you've listened to here in this conference today, and you will on the morrow. Now that's my testimony to you, and I pray God to keep each of you, keep you and your families with the harness on and using your gifts and talents for the building of our Father's kingdom and leave you my love and blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. On one occasion, a group of Pharisees confronted the Savior and demanded to know when the kingdom of God would come on the earth. Their tradition had taught them that God's kingdom would be impressive in its demonstration of power and in its earthly dominion. Their question, therefore, was a challenge to the Lord's assertion that when the kingdom of God was established on the earth, it would not be as other earthly kingdoms. The Master's response on this occasion teaches a significant lesson regarding the real source of power and influence within his kingdom. He answered, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. The Savior attempted to impress his questioners with the fact that the real power in the kingdom of God is not represented in outwardly observable things. Its strength is in the quality of the lives of its members. It is in the depth of their purity, their charity, their faith, their integrity, and their devotion to truth. This great lesson escaped the perception of the Pharisees. It has significance for us today. Today our chapels and congregations dot almost every land in the free world. Our temples will soon be within easy traveling distance of almost every member. The percentage of members who attend meetings and activities is at an all-time high. These are encouraging signs. Hopefully, they are indicators of inward strength. 
We rejoice in the growth that has marked the development of the church in this century, and particularly in the last decade or two. We take encouragement from our missionary successes, as rightly we should. But in all of this outward manifestation of increasing strength, we cannot forget the Savior's injunction to those who look for the kingdom of God to manifest itself in ways that would be impressive by earthly standards. Behold, he said, the kingdom of God is within you. Several months ago, I attended a conference in a stake that had compiled an impressive statistical record. By all observable standards, this was a stake comprised of devoted, faithful Latter-day Saints. As I met with the stake president in our first interview, I was not surprised that he was anxious to review with me the excellent statistical record that his people were making. The reports had been arranged on his desk to facilitate this review. Before looking at them, I asked the president, Tell me, how do you feel about your people? Generally speaking, in their spiritual qualities, are they standing on higher ground this year than they were a year ago? I wanted to assess the president's personal discernment regarding the spiritual strength of his members. He immediately seized this opportunity to direct my attention to the reports. Sensing that he had misunderstood the intent of my question, I explained, I'll be pleased to review the reports with you, but before we do, would you tell me how you feel about your people? My insistence on his making this kind of assessment, apart from the information in the reports, was both frustrating and perplexing to the President. I was sensitive to his frustration, and so without further discussion, we went through the statistical information. It indicated considerable progress in many areas that are amenable to a quantitative evaluation. I believe the reports were significant indicators of the spiritual quality of the people. However, I had failed to draw from the President the kind of discerning evaluation I had solicited. At the same time, I sensed that he was a little perplexed with me, and he was somewhat pensive at the conclusion of our interview. His pensiveness continued throughout the meetings of the afternoon and evening and caused me some concern. On the following day, as the President delivered his address in the general session of the conference, he surprised me by telling the members about his experience with me the previous day. He acknowledged his frustration over my apparent reluctance to go into an immediate review of his correlated reports and this frustration had remained with him into the night. As he was pondering these things, there came into his mind an experience he had had during the week prior to the conference. He had visited a member of the stake who was in a hospital recuperating from surgery. During this visit, a nurse had entered the room, making her regular calls on the patients. She had gone to some charts that were hanging at the foot of the patient's bed, carefully perused some notations, and then added some of her own. She had then stepped to the side of the patient, felt her pulse, placed a hand on her forehead, asked some questions, and received some responses. The president said, 
It occurred to me that the nurse was attempting to assess some of the patient's vital signs, some that were not reflected in the notations on the charts. The president said that it was then in his reflections that the purpose of my questioning the day before had registered with him. I realized, he said, that Elder Larson was asking me to assess your spiritual vital signs in ways that the reports may not have revealed. He then continued, Today, I'm going to talk with you about those spiritual vital signs, those that go beyond the information on the charts. Interestingly, he made no reference in his remarks to the, to the statistical reports. We have good reason to feel encouraged and optimistic today as we observe the rapid growth of the Church throughout the world. We are pleased with the level of participation of the members. Even though we acknowledge it can be improved, the willingness of the people to serve and to sacrifice for the sake of the Lord's work is commendable. But what of the kingdom that is within our own souls? There are evidences that we are not completely free from weaknesses within. Family problems multiply. Divorce becomes more common. Signs of preoccupation with worldly material concerns are apparent on every side. Questionable compliance with principles of trust and integrity in business dealings is too frequent. Courtesy and kindness are too often replaced by abruptness and rudeness in human relations. Growing evidences of promiscuity and infidelity to marriage covenants beset us. While acknowledging that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only true and living Church upon the face of the whole earth, speaking of the Church collectively and not individually, the Lord expressed a reservation about the individual members and explained, For I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. At another time he warned those of his church. Behold, he said, Vengeance cometh speedily upon the inhabitants of the earth, and upon my house shall it begin, and from my house shall it go forth, saith the Lord. First among those among you, saith the Lord, who have professed to know my name and have not known me, and have blasphemed against me in the midst of my house, saith the Lord. In this time of impressive church growth, it is well for us to look within our own souls to assess our individual spiritual vital signs. Too frequently, Latter-day Saints of all ages yield to the temptation to explore and sample forbidden things of the world. Often this is not done with the intent to embrace these things permanently, but with the knowing decision to indulge in them momentarily as though they hold a value of some kind too important or too exciting to pass by. While some recover from these excursions, increasingly large numbers of tragedies occur that bring a blight and a despair to many lives. The cumulative effect of this is devastating. The reverberations will affect the lives of those who indulge as well as the lives of those who have loved and trusted them in unfortunate and unforeseen ways 
for indefinite periods of time. As a consequence of these things, humanity slips inexorably to a lower level. The real power and influence in the kingdom and the Church of God are diminished, and all mankind will inevitably feel the loss. Furthermore, as a collective Church, we jeopardize our capacity to merit and claim the protecting and preserving blessings from the Lord. For those who keep the trust placed in them, and who do not yield to the pattern of the times, and for those who have made or are making their way back from dark paths, I have the most profound admiration and gratitude. You are our shining hope. You are our real strength. You will make a significant difference in the final outcome of things. You are the last great counterforce against the evil that is engulfing the earth. God bless you for this. As I view the days that lie ahead, I am hopeful because of the Lord's promise, and I know his kingdom will prevail. But I tremble as I read his declaration to us, for this is a day of warning and not a day of many words. For I, the Lord, am not to be mocked in the last days. The enduring strength of the kingdom is not to be found in the number of its members, the rate of its growth, or the beauty of its buildings. In God's kingdom, power is not equated with body count nor with outward compliance with prescribed performances. It is found in those quiet, uncharted acts of love, obedience, and Christian service that may never come to the attention of official leadership, but which emulate the ministry of the Lord himself. It is a time for us to assess our own spiritual vital signs in those essential areas that take us beyond the information in the charts. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. One extremely hot afternoon, I was crossing the green agricultural land of the Pampas in Argentina. The sun was scorching the highway to the point that the heat wave became visible. Nevertheless, I was confident and comfortable because I had just purchased a brand new car, fresh from the factory with a big motor and plenty of power to conquer the elements and allow me to travel briskly in the air-conditioned comfort. Suddenly I noticed that the temperature in my new car had begun to climb and the big motor began to show signs of a strain. When the temperature got to a dangerous point, I pulled the car over to the side of the road in the hopes that even my very limited knowledge of mechanics could discover what was wrong with my car. I must admit, uh, admit I was rather disgusted to think that something could stop my big new car. 
It wasn't long after I had lifted the hood that I discovered, to my amazement, that a myriad of colorful little butterflies had collected upon the radiator, which jarred off the cooling process and stopped the car. I was then struck with the realization of how a few hundred little butterflies in the collective strength could master the immense horsepower of the motor. No, it wasn't an eagle, a hack, or anything else more or less justifiable, but just a couple hundred little butterflies. This incident made me think about the similarity between it and what often happens in our own lives. I thought about the tremendous potential that exists in each one of us, potential that can direct us to eternal life. The prophet Joseph Smith said, Here then is eternal life, to know the only wise and true God, and you have got to learn how to be God yourselves, and to be kings and priests to God, the same as all gods have done before you, namely, by going from one small degree to another, and from a small capacity to a great one, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, until you attain to the resurrection of the dead and are able to dwell in everlasting burnings and to sit in glory, as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, what is it to inherit the same power, the same glory, and the same exaltation until you arrive at the station of a God and ascend the throne of eternal power, the same as those who have gone before. How many times do we allow that little butterflies reduce, restrain, or restrict our immense potential for guiding us to exaltation? Proportionally, there are relatively few those who are detained in their journey by the so-called grave or serious sins, like what we might find in the newspaper headlines. Generally, it is not the mighty eagle that defeats us, but the tiny little butterflies. To better illustrate this concept, I would like to mention some of those road hazards that become obstacles in our marvelous journey to the celestial kingdom. How we thought about the tremendous spiritual deterioration that results from not keeping the Sabbath day holy? This commandment is much more involved and consistent than just resting from our labors. Keeping the Sabbath day holy inherently builds spiritual characters and prepares us for what is to come. By observing these commandments, we will have power over evil. We will be more capable of keeping the commandments of the Lord and maintaining ourselves unspotted from the sins of the world. More specifically speaking about the Sabbath day, how we thought about the spiritual malnourishment that results from not attending our sacrament meetings or attending them with the wrong attitude, the sacred covenant made by the members of the church at baptism should be the prevailing thoughts and feelings in our hearts and minds as we partake of the sacrament. If we can achieve this, we will always have the Spirit of the Lord with us. 
no member of the Church can ignore or simply put aside the weekly renewal of this covenant and pretend to maintain the Spirit. If we really understand the purpose of our sacrament meetings, we will attend them not just to hear someone speak, which is of course important, but to renew the sacred covenant made with our Father in heaven in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Those who make a habit of not attending this weekly service and fail to repent put in great danger their spiritual stability and welfare. How we ever stop to think what it means to our salvation when we neglect prayer or don't develop from our prayers repeatedly gratifying daily experiences we are continually referring to the power of prayer, but are we always willing to pay the price so that the promise may be fulfilled as we find in 3 Nephi 18? Behold, barely, barely I say unto you, ye must watch and pray always, lest ye enter into temptation. For Satan desireth to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Therefore, ye must always pray, unto the Father in my name. And whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is right, believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be given unto you. Another example. Do we realize that every time that we sustain the leaders of the church, we are duty-bound to support them? The raised hand becomes a symbol of the covenant we make to support them. Each time that we criticize or, or condemn them, we become literally covenant breakers. President Joseph F. Smith made the following comments about this problem. The moment a man says he will not submit to the legally continued authority of the church, whether it be the teachers, the bishopric, the high council, his quorum, or the first presidency, and in his heart, confirms it and carries it out, that moment he cuts himself off from the privileges and blessings of the priesthood of the church and severs himself from the people of God, for he ignores the authority that the Lord has instituted in his church. I had, had, I had um, innumerable experiences listening to the reasons people have for not paying, for not paying their tithing most of which are cases of just a simple like lack of faith. I remember once in 1957, when I was acting as a new president of a branch in Argentina, I decided to interview the members with respect to the importance of paying tithing. I found myself talking with the one good brother of the branch, whose name was Jose, who had difficulties paying his tithing. I asked him bluntly, Brother Jose, why don't you pay your tithing? I'm sure Jose didn't expect me to be so direct. After a moment of silence, he responded, As you know, President, I have two children. The wage of a laborer is very low. This month, I have to buy my children shoes to go to school. And mathematically, I just don't have enough money. In an instant response, I said, Jose, I promise you that if you pay your tithing faithfully, your children will have their shoes to go to school, and you will be able to pay 
for all the needs of your home. I don't know how he will do it, but the Lord always keeps his promises. Beside that, I added, if you still find that you don't have enough money, I will give you back what you paid in tithing from my own pocket. On the way home, I was wondering if, if, I had done the, if, if what I had done it was the right thing. Here I was, recently married, just getting started in my career. I'm faced with my own economic problems of the times and age. I began to worry about my own shoes, let alone those of Jose's family. <laughs> Even though uh, when I got home, my dear wife wholeheartedly supported me, support me and reassured me that everything would be all right. I must say that that night, nobody prayed harder for Brother Jose's economic welfare than I did. <laughs> One month later, I once again sat down with Jose. Though the tear of his eyes almost made it impossible for him to speak, he said, President, it is incredible. I paid my tithing. I was able to meet all my obligations, and I even purchased the new shoes for my children, all without an increase in my wage. I know that the Lord keeps his promises. Many years later, Jose remains to this day a faithful Payer. Up until now, I have mentioned only a few of the problems arising from the little butterflies that we find in our eternal pathway. Of course, there are many more. We could mention, for example, the lack of self-control that leads many people to break the word of wisdom, the various excuses for not complying with the program of personal and family preparedness, the lack of encouragement and apathy with regard to our genealogical responsibilities, the failure to return often to the temples of the Lord to do the necessary work for our kindred dead. In some cases, the lack of interest. In other cases, the fear that precludes many from participating in missionary work. These are only examples of a list that goes on and on without end. It is highly probable that we may never lose our status as member of the Church simply for not adhering to one or more of the aforementioned commandments. Nevertheless, whether individually or collectively, these little butterflies affect our spiritual development and fundamentally the real capa capability of each individual. For the power is in them, wherein they are agent unto themselves, and inasmuch as men do good, they shall in no ways lose their reward. The Lord hasn't sent us the world to fail. We have been invested with all the talents and abilities necessary for the journey to arrive, to be once again in His presence. Our greatest challenge is to faithfully and decidedly use all that he has given us to, to reach our exaltation. If such is, is our accomplishment, if we live by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God, at the end of our journey, we will once again be part 
of a glorious experience like what was before at the start when all the sons of God shouted for joy. I know that the Lord has made this possible and that he blesses us and will continue to bless us as we progress to our glorious destination. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Some years ago, an assignment took me to one of the islands of the South Seas to dedicate a newly completed chapel. That evening, as I approached the building with some of the local leaders, we were surprised to notice that the building was completely dark. As we entered the building and saw all the members sitting in the chapel, we inquired about the absence of lighting. The bishop informed us that earlier in the afternoon, the building supervisor had inspected the building to make sure all was in readiness for the dedication. But now, as the time approached to begin the services, for some reason there were no lights, even though the lights were aglow in nearby homes. All possibilities for correcting the problem were checked without success, and so the local leaders and I decided to proceed with the dedicatory services. As the program proceeded, illuminated only by a kerosene lantern in the front of the chapel, I felt sure that this could be, would be the first dedication performing the total darkness in the history of the Church. I'm sure all those good brothers and sisters in the congregation joined me with a silent prayer in their hearts to ask the Lord to bless us with light so that the chapel could be dedicated. <laughs> one by one, the speakers spoke in the dark. The choir sang beautiful anthems in the dark. As the concluding speaker, I, too, gave my talk in the dark. Then as I asked the congregation to unite with me for the dedicatory prayer, the lights in the chapel suddenly flickered on. How grateful we were to the Lord for this special blessing. I was overcome with emotion and felt meek and humble that we have been so blessed. But the illumination of the chapel could not compare with the light of love in our hearts for this great blessing in answer to our prayers. It brought to mind the words of the prophet Moroni, and now I, Moroni, would speak somewhat concerning these things. I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not, because ye see not for you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. For if there be no faith among the children of men, God can do no miracle among them. Wherefore, he showed not himself until after their faith. Yes, the Lord blessed us even as our faith was tested, and as we prayed with hope. There are others among us who search for light in their lives. One such young man had broken many of the laws of the land and had been punished by prison sentence. He even escaped from prison, only to be caught and reincarcerated a short time later. His was truly a life of darkness and misery, but through the constant effort of a caring bishop, this young man decided to change his ways and return to Christ. With a meek and lowly heart, he began to repent, and the Spirit of the Holy Ghost touched his heart. As he prepared to leave prison after serving his term, there to greet him at the gate was his bishop, who had worked with him all those years. And he brought with him his father, mother, 
brothers and sisters who received him with open arms and great rejoicing. What a deep appreciation this young man had for his bishop and his family who had stood by him even through even though he had caused him much embarrassment and many sleepless nights with his wayward activities. But their faith never wavered, and indeed a miracle was wrought. Today, this young man serves as the eldest calm president of his ward. What great force changed the life of this young man from one of spiritual darkness to one of truth and light? It was the pure love of Christ that the bishop portrayed as he worked with him. And this pure love of Christ is charity. The prophet Nephi said, Wherefore the Lord God had given a commandment that all men should have charity, which charity is love. And except they should have charity, they were nothing. Wherefore, if they should have charity, they would not suffer the laborer in Zion to perish. We must also remember the faith and courage of this young man's family as they endured many trials and heartaches and then greeted him with open arms at the end of the ordeal. The prophet Moroni reminds us, Behold, it was the faith of Nephi and Lehi that wrought the change upon the Lamanites, that they were baptized with fire and with Holy Ghost. Behold, it was the faith of Ammon and his brethren which wrought so great a miracle among the Lamanites. Yea, and even all they who wrought miracles wrought them by faith, even those who were before Christ and also those who were after. And neither at any time had any wrought miracles until after their faith, wherefore they first believed in the Son of God. The prophet Mormon also preached that it is by faith that miracles are wrought, for no man can be saved according to the words of Christ, save they shall have faith in his name. Wherefore, if a man have faith, he must need have hope. For without faith there cannot be any hope. And again, behold, I say unto you that he cannot have faith and hope, save he shall be meek and lowly of heart. And if a man be meek and lowly in heart, and confesses by the power of the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Christ, he must need have charity. We are reminded today of the importance of charity through the Apostle Paul's epistles to the Corinthians. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I, give, I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profited me nothing. Charity suffered long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunted not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemingly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. In the church, we have many opportunities to perform charitable acts. Some of the greatest acts of charity begin with an outstretched hand of friendship. One great example was related by an elderly brother in a ward conference meeting. 
This good brother was the Sunday school president and was called upon to bear his testimony. During 12 years of his life of inactivity, he had been tossed to and fro with life's problems and had become filled with deep, deep despair. When life seemed its blackest, hands of fellowship and friendship were extended, first by home teachers, then by the bishop, then by members of the ward. As he returned to activity in the church and felt the warm spirit of the members extended to him without judgment or reservation, he knew that the gospel of Jesus Christ was true and that there is always room for a repentant soul. The Lord forgives. His true followers also forgive. The hand of friendship is outstretched. The sinner repents. The circle of charity is complete. The prophet Mormon also taught, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, if ye have not charity, ye are nothing. For charity never faileth. Wherefore, cleave unto charity, which is the greatest of all, for all things must fail. But charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever. And whoso is found possessed of it, at the last day it shall be well with him. As we faithfully render our stewardships in the Church, as we remember that our action speaks the feelings of our hearts, and as we extend our love to our Savior who waits to receive us into his kingdom, may we do so with hope and with love and with charity. His invitation to the generations of mankind rings forth in this hymn, Come unto Jesus. Come unto Jesus, ye heavy-laden, Care worn and fainting, but by sin oppressed, he'll safely guide you into that haven where all who trust him may rest. Come unto Jesus, he'll ever heed you. Though in the darkness you've gone astray, his love will find you and gently lead you from darkest night into day. Come unto Jesus, he'll surely hear you. If you in meekness plead for his love, Oh, know you not that angels are near you from the bright mansions above? Come unto Jesus from every nation, from every land and isle of the sea. Unto the high and lowly in station, ever he calls, come unto me. My dear brothers and sisters, I bear humble testimony that I know that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, and if we heed his beckoning to come unto him, surely we will be blessed with all the blessing he has in store for the faithful and the righteous. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.